see Blake bringing up the table. I appreciate that, Blake. Next Sunday is a red-letter day for this guy and for Kara. We are going to have a commissioning service, uh, both services, but certainly in this service, you're going to be able to hear from the president of Greater Europe Mission, and we're going to have a time of prayer and just committing Blake and Kara to this ministry God's called them to. It's going to be an incredible, incredible time, and um, we really appreciate y'all, and uh, I've said bittersweet too many times, so I won't say it now. I'm going to say it's going to be a time of celebration. It's going to be fantastic. And this morning, such a good time. You know, I'm going to be talking, as I've told you before, about gratitude. And this is a good day to talk about gratitude for lots of reasons. And one of them we've already mentioned. Uh, we have Veterans Day coming up. And I totally concur with what Art said, that we don't take it for granted. We are mindful of how much we owe to those who have served this country. And so we are grateful for you. And we're grateful for all God has done for all of us. Gratitude is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Martin Luther said it pretty much sums up the Christian life. The Christian life is a matter of living out our gratitude to God. This last week, I came across a great Hasidic parable that speaks of gratitude. There were two poor farmers who were walking along a country road, and they, along the way, met their rabbi. The rabbi turned to one and said, how goes it for you? And the man said, oh, rabbi, it's terrible, terrible. Life is so hard. Every day I awake in the morning, and I think it's not worth it to get out of bed. It is so hard, so difficult, so discouraging. My life is terrible. It's terrible. And God was listening in, and God said, your life is terrible? The life you have now is terrible? I'll show you terrible. Then the rabbi turned to the other man, and you, my friend, how are you? He said, oh, rabbi, my life is wonderful. God blesses me every day. Whatever happens that day, I know that in the end, it all works out for good. God has smiled upon me and my family. I'm so grateful. Life is good. And that man's words rose to heaven and harmonized with the song of all the saints and angels. And God, with delighted laughter, said, Your life is good? Your life now is good? I'll show you good. And the lesson of the parable is that so much in our life depends upon our gratitude. So many people live unhappy lives because they are ungrateful. That's the intention of the parable. And you know what? That's what modern scientific study has determined. It's really astonishing, but this is one of the most well-established truths of modern psychological research, that gratitude makes you happier and healthier and your life better in almost every way. Physically, people who are grateful are healthier than those who are not, whether you're talking about heart disease or other, other areas of health. 
you're better off if you're grateful, and not only in terms of your physical health, but your mental and emotional health. People who are grateful are less likely to be anxious, less likely to be depressed. Their marriages are better. Isn't that interesting? One of the best indicators that a marriage will succeed is when each spouse is grateful for the other one and expresses that. That's interesting. Another study, a very famous study by a scholar in New York found that what predicts a marriage failing is when a husband or wife have contempt for one another. So those are mirror opposites, contempt, gratitude. Gratitude improves our marriage. Among young people, this is really interesting, those who are grateful have more friends. They're less likely to be depressed. They get better grades in school. They're less likely to use drugs or alcohol. And they go on to be more successful in life. You could just about cover the gamut. Gratitude leads to well-being. In fact, if you could take gratitude and you could put it in a capsule, that would be as close as you could get to a happy pill that there could ever be. Gratitude leads to happiness. That's a simple fact. Now, this has been uncovered by many scientists, but the one who really started bringing this to the forefront is a man named Martin Seligman. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He's one of the most significant and widely cited psychologists in the world. Seligman taught psychology as it had always been taught, talking about schizophrenia, talking about addiction, talking about depression, talking about anxiety. And he said, I got tired of talking about how bad everybody was and what terrible problems people went through. He said, it dawned on me we ought to be doing something about studying emotional and mental health. And so he, along with a few others, started what's been called positive psychology, where they start studying attributes of people that lead to well-being and happiness. And one of those attributes is gratitude. Not just gratitude as a momentary feeling, but gratitude as a trait. In other words, some people are more grateful, whatever they experience, than others. And those people thrive. He actually wrote a book called Thrive. And in it, he tells about an assignment that he's given to his students. In fact, when he first gave this assignment some years before, he expected that it would have a positive impact, but he had no idea just how positive. He told the students to pause and think about a person who had meant a lot to them, somebody that had, had poured into their life, that had helped them become the person that they were, somebody they were grateful for. He said, now, what I want you to do is I want you to write a letter to that person telling them how much they've meant to you. He said, I want you to really do it up. Get into the details. Tell the story. Write this letter and then call the person. Set up an appointment. Go visit them. Bring the letter with you and read it to them right there in their presence. If they interrupt you out of embarrassment and they try to stop you, just ask them politely to let you go ahead and finish and read that letter. And then let's meet back and you tell me how it went. 
Well, he had had them go through a, a, psychi- a psychiatric measure before they went, a, a measure of their mood and, 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 you know, their general sense of well-being, and then after. And not surprisingly, they were just electrified by the experience. They felt this surge of joy and happiness when they shared with somebody else all that they meant to them, when they expressed their gratitude. Now that Seligman expected. What he didn't expect was following up a month later and finding that those who did this exercise were still happier than those who had not. In other words, the happiness lasted. The elevation of mood lasted. And since then, he's given the same assignment to thousands of people in every imaginable profession, but especially in the people-helping professions. And he has discovered that doing this exercise once can positively affect your mood for months. That's just how powerful gratitude is. Now, here's the thing. Positive psychologists have done a lot of research on this, and they have empirically shown that gratitude is a good thing and good for you, but it's not as if we didn't know it before their research. Because as a matter of fact, when you open up the Bible, again and again, we are admonished, encouraged, exhorted to give thanks, to express our gratitude to God as well as to others. It's all throughout the Scripture. And we are to do it not simply because it makes us feel better, but because it is fitting. If God has lavished blessing upon us, it's only fitting that we would be grateful for what he's done. And so, as I say, there are many different Scriptures. For example, Psalm 103. If you were to ask me what is my favorite psalm, I might just say, this is it. And the first few verses are striking. Psalm 103, verse 1, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he lists some of them, just some of them. You could add many to this list just by consulting your own life who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He starts off saying, praise the Lord, my soul. He's talking to himself. He's saying, you've got to shake off this spiritual sloth and begin to praise God for all that God has done for you. Praise God, my soul. Do it from your inmost being, he says. Not just speaking words, but but arousing and stoking from within your being a sense of how much you owe God. Forget not his benefits, he says. And the Hebrew could be translated, ignore not his benefits. In other words, Don't just live with God's blessings and eh, take them for granted. Oh, yeah, that's really my due. All these things that you have, you think, well, you know, that's what everybody has. And you just forget about those. There's a word for that attitude. It's called entitlement. No 
Don't forget, he says, those blessings. Don't ignore those blessings, but call them to mind. Count them up and then express thanks for them. Now, that's what Scripture says. It says it all the time. But I realize that for some of us, that's a hard step to take. And it's because, it's because we have experienced something or we're presently living in a situation that drags us down. And it may even be when you try to give thanks to God, it just, it just stops in your throat because you have a story, a story of trouble, a story of tragedy, a story of hurt, of disappointment. And because of that, there's anger, there's regret, there's grief, there's disappointment. I talked with a young man this last week He's not yet 20 years old, and he's already seen far too much. He's already experienced far too much. When I think about his story, I think, why, God? And that's the question that he had asked himself. Why, God? Why? I believe in you. I'm seeking to serve you. Why? And some of you are in that very same situation. So you hear this about gratitude, and even if you accept it, in some theoretical way, it doesn't seem to resonate with your life, not with what you've experienced. And there are some stories that could be told by the people in this room. Some of you suffering various forms of abuse, including sexual abuse. Some of you haven't been betrayed and abandoned by the people who are closest to you. Some of you have made mistakes for which you are deeply ashamed and they will affect your life forever. There are so many things that happen and it's hard then to just be grateful. The Bible talks about that too. Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let me read to you what he says. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, the this is God's will for you is not that terrible thing that happened. God's will for you is that you rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. That's God's will for you to give thanks in all circumstances, but not for all circumstances. To give thanks in it because you know that in the midst of it, in spite of it, even through it, by some miracle of grace, God's good favor still reaches you. It's extraordinary how God can take the very worst and in it, through it, can somehow bring about blessing. And so we can give thanks in every circumstance because of that reality. That's what Paul tells us to do. And that's, that's the way to well-being. If you've been scarred, if you've been damaged, if you, you live with trouble or trauma that makes it hard to give thanks, you must, must learn to give thanks to God who is nevertheless gracious to you and has blessed you in many ways, and even in that trouble, can and will bless you.
Now, maybe you don't see it all at once. Sometimes it takes time, but God's blessing comes. Have some of you heard the name Henri Nouwen? He was a spiritual writer, a Catholic priest, and a psychologist. He taught for a time at University of Notre Dame, after that Yale, after that Harvard. But he was a man who was unsettled. He found life difficult, partly because he was tightly wound. This was a tense and anxious man. He was prone to depression. And as a believer, that troubled him because he not only had to deal with the depression, but with that added question, God, why me? I'm your child. I'm seeking to serve you. I've committed my whole life to follow you, and here I struggle with depression. He eventually left Harvard, and he began living for his last 10 years of his life at a community for special needs adults in Ontario. And there... God began to heal him in new ways. He took care of a young man named Adam who had severe uh, developmental issues. And he said that Adam, about a man about whom he wrote a book, he said Adam meant more to him than he did to Adam. Adam helped him more than he helped Adam. But he had to care for him all day, every day. But he, he lived among these people, and still, still he would struggle. And a lot of his writings, wise writings, come out of that struggle. You know, that's the way it is, isn't it? Because when, when you battle it through and you pray it through, you come to insights that you desperately need, and then you share that with others, you find out other people need it too. And that's what he found out. And so life was not, was not particularly easy for Henri Nouwen. And there was another reason it wasn't easy. He struggled his entire life with his sexuality. I won't say he's, he was gay because that word comes loaded with all sorts of commitments that are wrong and wrong, wrong-headed. Gay suggests that you've got two different kinds of human beings when you don't. What you've got are human beings who are sexual beings and Sometimes, most of the time, they feel an attraction to the opposite sex, sometimes to the same sex, but either attraction can lead someone astray. Henri Nouwen dealt with same-sex attraction, and it was something that troubled him. By the way, it wasn't something that he said, oh, well, you know what? I would find greater fulfillment if I simply deviated from God's will. He did not deviate from God's will. He was faithful to Christ, and he lived faithfully to Christ as a celibate man and, frankly, a celibate priest. So that wasn't the issue. The issue was this was something that was like sand in his soul that kept him troubled. Some of you in this place, almost certainly, I'm just doing this based on numbers and percentages, know exactly what I'm talking about because that's what you deal with. And it's like, Lord, why am I like this? But it doesn't have to be that particular issue. It can be some other issue. But the reason I bring it up is I want you to know that Henri Nouwen knew what it was to have discontent and trouble in his heart. And so he had to pray through those things. He had to work through those things. In his obedience to Christ, it wasn't always easy. In fact, it was terribly difficult at times. Obedience can be difficult, and it can have a high cost. 
But he writes in one of his books about gratitude and the importance of gratitude. And I want to read to you what he says. To be grateful for the good things that happen in our lives is easy. But to be grateful for all of our lives, the good as well as the bad, the moments of joy as well as the moments of sorrow, the successes as well as the failures, the rewards as well as the rejections, that requires hard spiritual work. Still, we are only truly grateful people when we can say thank you to all that has brought us to the present moment. As long as we keep dividing our lives between events and people we would like to remember and those we would rather forget, we cannot claim the fullness of our beings as a gift of God to be grateful for. Let's not be afraid to look at everything that has brought us to where we are now and trust that we will soon see in it the guiding hand of a loving God. Now it's trying to emphasize God's presence in grace at every moment. And, he, and to emphasize it, he, he almost sounds as if he's saying, well, you know what? The good and the bad, it's all good. It sounds almost like he's saying there is no bad, but that's not the case. That's not what he believed. What he's trying to say is even the greatest tragedy, the greatest hurt is one in which God is present and at work and will see us through if we look to him. You may have heard of a man named Anthony Ray Hinton. In 1985, he was arrested for the murder of two managers at different fast food stores. He had a rock-solid alibi. He passed a polygraph test. There really was no no evidence. In fact, in fact, the evidence that was used against him was concocted. This was Alabama. This was a, a young black man, 29 years old. He was arrested. He was tried. Police officer lied on the stand. Exonerating evidence was not pursued. He was told by some When he pleaded his innocence, they said, it doesn't matter if you're innocent, you're going down for this. The judge let it all happen. And so Anthony Ray Hinton was convicted of two murders and he was placed on death row in 1986. And there he stayed for the next 30 years. His cell was just 30 feet from the room where over 50 men and one woman during that 30 years entered to be electrocuted, put to death. There he was on death row, solitary confinement, which meant for one hour each day he got to leave that cell. That was the only time he ever saw the sun. It's the only time he had human contact And the people he had contact with were other prisoners on death row. He was a Christian. He had been taught by his mother that you can always trust in God. God will never fail you. She taught him God sits high, but he looks low. 
He'll never fail you. He sees you. He knows your need. But he didn't understand how is it that I'm convicted of something I did not do. He walked into his cell, he took his Bible and he threw it under the bed and he didn't look at it for three years. He didn't talk to God for three years. In fact, he didn't talk to anyone for three years. He went silent for three years, stewing in his hatred for the police officers who arrested him and lied about him, for the prosecutor who couldn't care less about guilt or innocence, for the judge that oversaw the whole unjust mess He hated them. He finally came to the point where he realized he couldn't live. He couldn't couldn't exist like this anymore. He said he looked at the mirror and he thought, I don't like who I see. And he started thinking again about the Lord that his mother had taught him about started thinking about that Bible that he had thrown under his bed. He prayed and asked God to take the hatred out of his heart. And he said it didn't happen all at once, but God took the hatred out of his heart and he forgave those who wronged him. He began praying every day, pleading with God to keep his promise. His, the fa- his favorite scripture was a promise from Mark 11. Whatsoever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and you shall have it. He prayed that every single day. A journalist some years later asked him, well, how often did you pray? He said, every day, every day, every day. He prayed that prayer. So during this time, he seemingly has no hope, but he kept hoping in God. And he said, God, I can't believe you're going to allow me to be put to death for something I didn't do. I'm trusting you, God. I'm looking to you, God. Said it was hard. It was hard to believe it when he saw people walking in that room to be executed. In 2015, a unanimous Supreme Court of the United States vacated his conviction. They looked at the evidence. They looked at the case. They looked at that his, his defense that was put up by the attorney, and they called it a travesty, and they vacated it. They overturned the decision. The state of Alabama had no real case to try. They dropped the charges. Anthony walks out of that prison seeing the sky that he hadn't seen for so long. And family, others coming and throwing their arms around him. Tragically, his mom's not there anymore. She died some years before with him still in prison, but still believing in him. This was a man who suffered so much, so much. But in his book, it was a bestseller. You can, you can get it on Amazon if you want it. I'd recommend it to you. In his book called The Sun Does Shine, How I Found Life and, and Freedom on Death Row, he tells how as God helped him to forgive others, he was able to start taking some sort of solace, even pleasure in the small things God gave him. He said, even if it was just 15 minutes outside where he could see the sun, he said it filled him with such joy. 
He thanked God for it. He took opportunities to try to inject some sort of of happiness in those around him. I know that sounds crazy, but he actually used, I don't believe he did it hardly, but he actually uses the word joy. He said, the world can't take away your joy. And he said, the state of Alabama couldn't take away mine. He said, Alabama could take away 29 years of my life. They could take away my 30s and my 40s and my 50s, but they couldn't take away my joy. That's a word I would never expect him to use, and yet you think back, rejoice always. He found his greatest satisfaction in speaking hope to the other men on death row that he would see for an hour each day. He would talk to them about Jesus Christ. He would talk to them about God's faithfulness. Many of them were later executed. And he tried to tell them why they could have hope if they put their hope in Christ. When he walked out of prison in 2015, he was already a free man. He was a man without bitterness and a man with gratitude in his heart who felt as if all heaven and earth had come together to redeem him when he walked out of prison doors. It's an extraordinary story. You know what he says about it? He says, how do I know that me going to prison wasn't necessary to reach some of these men who had no hope? How do I know that it, isn't import- that it wasn't necessary for me to do what I'm doing now? Because he's going all over the world talking to people about the hope of Jesus Christ, but also about prison reform. He's met the president. He met the queen. He's met all sorts of people as he's gone from churches to universities, sharing his message. It's a tremendous and it's a powerful message. He says, how do I know? If you want to see him, go to the official website of Birmingham, Alabama, and you'll see a video there of Anthony sitting down with the young mayor of Birmingham. The purpose of the meeting was for the mayor to apologize to him for the terrible injustice that was done. But instead, Anthony's talking to this younger man like a father to a son, and he's, he's giving him advice. And he says to him, now listen, with all the stuff you're doing, just don't forget, you go home each day, you put it aside, you go home, And you thank God for what he helped you do that day. He said, now, don't you worry about tomorrow. You be grateful for his blessings right now. What an extraordinary man. So let me ask you this. I know it can be terribly difficult. Rejoice. Pray continually. Give thanks in every circumstance. That's easy to say, you think. But it's not so easy when you've been what I've been through, what I've been through. Have you been through worse than Anthony Ray Hinton? Have you been through worse? Likely not. Comparable, perhaps, but likely not worse. Your freedom, where you find life in that prison cell, is learning gratitude to God.
You need a wide-angle lens that is to see all the blessings that are still in your life in spite of what you've dealt with. And then you need the long perspective where you can see that in the end, Jesus Christ and his redemption will overtake and swallow up every dark chapter in your life and turn it to blessing. We need the faith, we need the faith to be grateful. That's what Anthony found, faith to be grateful. Somebody asked him, a reporter asked him, he said, uh, how do you respond to that saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger? And he says, I like to talk about it this way. The hard things God allows you to go through make you stronger. Because he said, unless you have faith in God, I just don't know how you can deal with something like what I had to deal with but God will see you through. Now, in a moment, we're going to share communion. Sometimes, in fact, more often, we call it Lord's Supper. But outside the Baptist world, many times you'll hear the Lord's Supper called the Eucharist. Have you ever heard that term? And you might wonder, why is it called the Eucharist? Well, after the New Testament period, in the century or so that followed. It's a period in which you had church leaders known as the apostolic fathers who left writings behind them. And they spoke of the Lord's Supper as the Eucharisteria, excuse me, the Eucharisteria. Eucharisteria in Greek means thankfulness or gratitude or the giving of thanks. And so many Christians began calling the Lord's Supper the Eucharisteria, the Eucharist, because it's a time in which we give thanks. Think about it. Jesus Christ lays down his life for us. He lays down his life for us. And what are the benefits we receive? Forgiveness, adoption into God's family, everlasting hope. We have every reason to give thanks because of what Christ has done for us, and that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. It is thanksgiving. So we're going to take a few moments before we eat and drink together, and I'd like to invite you just to join me reflecting on the goodness of God, the grace of God. Let's tell our souls to give thanks. Let's allow gratitude to rise up. Just for the next few moments, would you do that?
want to read from Matthew's account of the Last Supper. As I do, if you've not already prepared the package that you have, you might want to do that. Matthew 26, verse 26, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending your Son. And if you have given us your Son, surely there is no good thing that you will withhold from us. Some of us, Lord, have found it hard to give thanks, hard to be grateful. And yet, Lord, all of us have cause to be grateful, and we pray you would give us faith that we could be so. Lord, we pray you'd lift us out of the darkness, the darkness of regret and anger and grief and resentment and disappointment. Lift us out of that and help us to see your gracious presence in our lives, your provision, even in the most difficult times. And Lord, help us in these moments as we eat and drink together to enter into deep communion with our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on our behalf.